You're listening to a talk from the 8th Annual Smoke Farm Symposium, presented by KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Here, Smoke Farm's Brendan Kiley introduces Professor Tanya Erzin. Well, welcome. I'm so glad you made it out. Uh, this is actually one of my favorite moments of every year. Uh, is the moment before the talks begin at the Smoke Farm Symposium. It's our eighth year. One of the projects that's come out of the symposium is uh, this journal, Black Box, A Record of the Catastrophe, which includes um, essays by several people who've spoken at the symposium before and some you'll hear from today. Um, And there are copies for sale or perusal, if you like, around the farm today. Um, So... I want to introduce Tanya Erzin, who is one of the contributors to Black Box. Uh, she's a writer, a professor at University of Puget Sound. When her, she focuses on religion, sexuality, prison issues. Um, some of the books she's written have been Straight to Jesus, about the ex-gay movement, uh, Fanpire, about Twilight fans. Um, she's written about police brutality, and she's got a new book called God in Captivity, The Rise of Faith-Based Ministries in an Age of Mass Incarceration. Uh, she's a Soros fellow. Uh, she's also written for The Nation, Guernica, Boston Globe, very prolific person, a great thinker, and a great friend to Smoke Farm. So I'd like to welcome Tanya Erzin. Hi, everyone. Thank you. I didn't realize I was the first speaker, so I arrived about 25 minutes ago, so they were a little panicked. Uh, Had I known, I'm I'm usually always on time. Uh, And I am going to talk about something today that's related to the work I do uh, in my teaching and my writing, and also I run a college program in the women's prison here in Washington so that women can get a college degree, and some of that informs a little bit of what I'm, I'm talking about today. So uh, normally I just talk and then I take questions, but there'll be a f- I, I'm actually doing something different. I'm going to ask you some questions as I go and sort of solicit feedback, and uh, hopefully you'll be up for it. Really, uh, I want to just start with a really simple question just to get you to, I want to get a few responses, which is, what do you think the purpose of a prison is? What's the purpose of a prison? Seems like a really simple question, but I think about it all the time. So anybody? Yeah. So to keep bad people away from law-abiding citizens. Okay. What else? It's a deterrent. Deterrent to to others who might do something wrong. Sure. A place for reformation. Certainly the first prisons were penitentiaries that were designed by religious reformers to, so people could become penitent and find some divine spark within them and, and be reformed. Uh, yes? Uh, a profit what? <laughs> profit center, yes. People make a lot of money off of prisons. Yes? Like symbolic retribution, sort of eye for an eye. Symbolic retribution, eye for an eye. Right, and, and I'm always struck by when you watch something like Nancy Grace, which I know you all do, um, and you see often the people who consider them the victims of crimes in this sort of census, well, now people are really going to get theirs because they're not only going to prison, but maybe they'll get hurt or they'll be assaulted and so forth. So this sort of idea of retribution, both symbolic and actual. 
Anything else? Yeah. A place to... To block, a place to block freedom. Yeah. A place of unfreedom. So th- thank you. That's helpful. And uh, when we, at the end, I sort of want to revisit this question, but have this idea uh, as a thread through what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, there's really, we live in a very interesting moment for a variety of reasons, but particularly in terms of criminal justice reform, you, we have a political a consensus across the political spectrum right now that there is a, a massive crisis, and mass incarceration in our country is, is a crisis. So you have groups like the ACLU working with the Koch brothers. Uh, you have Newt Gingrich, um, Paul Ryan, and others talking about prison reform in addition to progressives, liberals, and, and people farther to the left. And so when it comes to the uh, sort of, if you want to talk about the sort of uniquely American nightmare, nothing really beats our carceral system. And I'm going to just show you this slide, because many of you probably know this, but I think it's important to just reiterate this over and over. We have 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners, and we have one-third of all the, the world's female prisoners in the United States. So the young woman who used to work for me uh, doing the college program just is now living in uh, Copenhagen, and her, she tells them, she, to, she wrote to me and said, I tell them about our college program, and they're very confused because there are probably about 10 women in all um, of the, the country in prison there. And they said, is your college program for teenagers? And she says, no. And she says, how could, how could somebody get to be 20 years old in the United States and not have a high school or college degree and then end up in prison. How is that possible? They were genuinely really confused. Um, I think that the other thing about the statistic is that most people are really unaware that we have essentially a human rights catastrophe occurring around us, uh, invisible to some and and to others, in our prisons, in our jails, but also in our immigration detention centers, which uh, which are growing. So the women's prison where I work is so overcrowded that they're shipping women to a jail in Yakima, uh, which is not equipped to hold anybody for any amount of time. It's The conditions there are horrid. Uh, and they're just shipping 50 people at a time because they just have this massive overcrowding. And they can't imagine an alternative, uh, which would might be, why are we sending so many people to prison in the first place? So how the left and the right views this crisis really differs, and and I think it really matters, because people on the right, and I'm talking in broad terms here, see the prisons as akin to an inefficient public institution. Uh, Overbloated bureaucracy, we spend too much money on them, and thus all of these states are with having essentially fiscal or in fiscal crisis. Uh, people on the left, progressives, well, I'd say progressives and liberals talk about prisons in terms of the uh, immense racial disparity in terms of who goes to prison, the sort of scandal of locking up so many people uh, for such long periods of time in such abysmal conditions, and really others question the basis of punishment, this kind of question I asked you at the beginning, which is not only what is the purpose of a prison, but why do we punish, how do we punish, and to what end do we punish? So I'm interested in today in discussing with you how these strands of prison reform in many ways end up reproducing the prison. And in my talk, I called it the prison beyond the walls. Uh, particularly this emphasis on cost saving and our sort of faith in new technology that will somehow address mass incarceration 
how it ends up creating other forms uh, of the prison, whether it's surveillance, control, policing. And, and because I, uh, as some of you who know me, I, I teach a class called the Apocalyptic Imagination, and I'm really interested in f- apocalyptic fiction and artists who imagine sort of the apocalyptic, how there's dystopian and utopian aspects to, to this technology. So some of the proposals from these coalitions, like the one I showed you, let's see if I go back. This first slide has one of the Koch brothers, um, Newt Gingrich. I think that's, um, you know, they've worked with Cory Booker. They've worked with the ACLU. And what they're basically arguing is that you you can have things like community supervision. So instead of sending people to prison, they can be supervised in a program. We can divert them to a different program, a drug court or a drug treatment. We can develop new parole systems to manage people instead of putting them in prison. And... My question is, do a lot of these new forms, these new sort of policies, end up merely expanding what I call the supervisory state? Does it just create new ways of of controlling? And in what ways are they obviously ripe for abuse? If the goal, for instance, is to fill a private addiction program, uh, right, or to make sure the, the private company administering parole stays in business, what incentive is there for people to get out of parole, to, to solve drug addiction, to get sort of to get out of prison and stay out of prison, right? It's, as someone said earlier, it's a system that's um, self-replicating in many ways. The women's prison here in Washington actually recently just adopted a private drug addiction program called Therapeutic Community, and it's all over the country. And so now, this is just in the past week, so I'm thinking about this, they've taken a group of about 150 women, and they're going to double that, and they've created an entire unit where they live separately, they dress separately, they're not allowed to talk to anybody else, they have certain language and greetings they can use with each other, Um, they have a whole system by which they confess, and other people sort of talk to them about their crime, they monitor each other, and this is really the trend uh, in in prisons, right, is to contract with these private companies, and there's a real belief that this is really the solution to uh, having so many people in prison. Uh, and again, my, my question is, does this effectively address this problem of mass incarceration, or does it merely com- compound or supplement it? And uh, I want to give you an example of a recent proposal by a liberal public policy professor from UCLA that has received a lot of um, interest from both the right and the left. And his name is Mark Kleinman. And he, one of the central problems with a lot of these reforms is that they address things like letting people out who have really long sentences for drug crimes or nonviolent crimes. But they haven't adequately thought about what do you do about violent crime? What do you do about people that harm other people? So his proposal was that um, in order to deal with this issue and not compromise public safety, he would put people in specific housing by the government and then monitor them 24-7 instead of sending them to prison. And that by doing this, we could reduce our prison population by 80%. So we'd let them out before their sentences are up, place them in apartments rented by the government, they'd be monitored via webcam all the time, and they'd be assigned public service jobs. They'd retain their status as prisoners, and they'd be subject to a strict set of rules, things like curfew, drug use, geographic location, where they can and can't go, who they can associate with, and that they would be located in communities populated by what he calls fully free citizens, 
and a function, and they would function, in his words, as, a, quote, a prison without bars. So I stole my title from Mark Kleinman for today. Um, and I'm curious, before I just move on, is what, what do you think of a proposal like that, listening to this, if you were a policymaker? Yeah. It sounds Orwellian. Why? <laughs> yeah. So it could be expanded to it could be expanded to more and more people, right? Who falls under it in some ways? Yeah. I think it's pretty easy to have a knee-jerk reaction, and it does sound horrible. But if it's, I mean, what, what, what's the like the old term? Don't let don't let the perfect be the enemy of Like, I mean, that might be a first step in the right direction, possibly. Mm-hmm. As opposed to just warehousing people in a state prison. Yeah. One experience I have with something like that was a women's prison in Pennsylvania that didn't have a wall. And so the women were locked down in houses in this fairly public setting. But what it meant was that they were controlled more through drugs and through an even deeper regimen than if they'd been in walls. Mm-hmm. So I could see almost like you'd be in your house, but you would be in a worse situation from a human control perspective than, than if you were in a prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Also because historically they have over-medicated people in prison for basic things like grief or, you know, other things that you could receive counseling for or find support for. You give med- And I've talked to Brendan about this. They give medicines, uh, antipsychotics and so forth. So what does it mean to have a whole population of people that are medicated in that way? There was one more and then I'll, yeah. It seems like it's safer than to be out It's safer. So if they're among the public anyway, why have them being monitored in this way? Right. And also, who determines who gets into this program? Back to your point, um, and and for how long, and so forth, and for what kinds of crimes? Yeah. Who does the monitoring? Good question. Who does the monitoring? The webcams. A private company monitors the webcams, right? Who knows? Yeah. What's the final outcome compared to keeping them in prison or out? What is our final goal? Is there any change in the, in the people? Is, what is the final goal? So someone earlier said the purpose of a prison is reformation. You know, you hear the words rehabilitation. And I think that's, I, I think that's an interesting question. Is the purpose of a prison or this prison beyond the walls to reform people in some way, to change them, to transform them? Is it to just warehouse them? Is it to have them come back and forth? Is it to give them the ability to be fully full citizens upon release? And, and, and that's an interesting question. Last one back there. Yeah. It seems to me The, the we're, we're, it's almost a way of distancing us from... Abdicating our responsibility when we privatize something to somebody else. Yeah, abdicating our responsibility. 
That's really interesting, and I, I want to come back to that because I do think there's an importance to proximity to others and proximity to suffering and what it can do in terms of, of politics. So, um, so I think what this proposal, you know, some have called it a, 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 perhaps a useful alternative. Others have called it chilling, dystopian. Uh, Bethany called it Orwellian. Uh, totally Orwellian. <laughs> uh, and I think as we, you know, those of us who want to fight mass incarceration, need to anticipate what this system is developing to replace or su- uh, supplement it. So will we have total surveillance? Will we have hyper-targeted profiling? So being able to profile certain people. Will we have legalization and regulation? So has anybody here read the author Octavia Butler before? Great. Um, so Octavia Butler lived here. She, she died a few years ago. She's the first African-American um, woman to win the Hugo or the Nebula for science fiction. And she wrote numerous books, uh, which are all fantastic. And she wrote an essay in 2000 called A Few Rules for Predicting the Future. And it was based off someone asking her about two of the books she did. One was called Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. Did anyone raise their hand read those? Parable of the Sower, yeah. Uh, And in those books, she wrote them in 1993, and she was predicting what the world today would look like. And she, uh, I think it's useful to think about her work in terms of predicting the future and what this all might look like in the future um, in terms of prison reform. But she talks about, in A Parable of the Sower, this United States in which there's increased drug addiction and illiteracy. There's a massive climate crisis. So water is the most valuable and scarce commodity. People are living in walled communities. She's, this takes place in Southern California. Drug, these certain kinds of drugs have made people wild and crazed, so they light everything on fire. Prisons are popular. No one's going to school. There's sexual slavery. slavery. There's enslavement of children. Um, and she's basically argued that I didn't make this up. I just looked around in 1993 and saw, looked at the things we were neglecting now, and I gave them about 30 years to grow into full-fledged disasters. That's what she said. Um, and she also said she looked to the rise of the Third Reich and to Nazism to think about how do we sort of slide into fascism. And she said, quote, I want to understand the lies that people have to tell themselves when they either quietly or joyfully watch their neighbors mind, spirited away, and killed. And I think back to your point, um, you know, this sort of idea, does, how do we abdicate our responsibility? What is our responsibility to people in prison? So I have four assumptions I want to put out here for you all, and you all have to agree by consensus or you can never leave this room. <laughs> uh, I, I just want to put these out here and, and see if, if we can make these assumptions. So one being um, the idea that our future criminal justice system, or what some people call our criminal injustice system, is being uh, methodically created by the far right, just like it was created 15 or 25 years ago, through new sentencing laws, through the war on drugs, as a reaction to civil rights, um, as a way of managing surplus populations, but with new rationales. So any disagreements about that? Tell me what the components of the criminal justice system are before I have the answer. That's a great question. 
It's, it's the legal apparatus that determines who goes to prison, so the series of prosecutors and lawyers and judges, the system, the prisons themselves, the system of parole and supervision, um, jails, detention centers, uh, the laws that affect people once they've been released, so in terms of voting, housing, ability to uh, get certain kinds of jobs, to get union work, that sort of that whole spectrum. And then the second assumption, because I'm going to assume that you all agree, is <laughs> Rich disagrees. Okay. Okay. How about haphazardly? Okay. Uh, And the second assumption is it will continue to be more a function of available technologies than the justification. So someone asked, you asked in the purple shirt, I think, what is the purpose, right? Is it, um, what what would be the, what are we trying to do? Is it you, right? Um, What are we trying to do with creating, say, this people, putting people in apartments and having them monitored 24-7? Is it rehabilitation? Are we trying to incapacitate people so that they can actually never leave prison um, so that that we compound their mental health issues, their trauma, and other things, and so they'll never leave as returning citizens? Is it deterrence, as someone mentioned earlier? Is it purely retribution, revenge? Um, And what a lot of people are arguing is that it's less these justifications than it is the technology itself that's driving um, how we move forward and how we think about criminal justice or the legal justice system. And I'll talk about technologies in just a second. The third assumption that without a major disruption, the system which grew out of white elites needs to control the labor and lives of black people will continue to be used as a tool of social control, that prisons have always been a means of social control. Uh, racial, class-based, and that they will continue to be so, especially if you look at the rise of convict leasing after the end of slavery in which new laws were created like loitering or um, stealing a pig to re to criminalize what were other act, non-criminal acts and thus put people into a system akin to slavery but under a different name, and those convict lease farms became what we now think of as the biggest penitentiaries or prisons in this country. And the fourth is that this system will continue to be highly adaptive and it's interested in self-preservation. So what kinds of technologies are we, do you all see, and that you think are, are part of this sort of new movement, this sort of emphasis on um, the, the prison beyond the walls? And I put a few examples up here, and I, they're in the title of my talk. Uh, when I did this with a group of people specifically who are all criminal justice reform advocates, um, the, the, we must have done the list, like we couldn't stop. I think for an hour people just said, and this, and this, and this. But um, some, of, some of the examples up here are the stingray um, that mimics a cell tower so they can monitor cell, cell use and what's being said, um, stop and frisk apps, border technology, Uh, DNA databases, so there was an interesting article about being able to find criminals by using the DNA of their relatives, Uh, facial recognition software, drones, fingerprint machines, registries, this idea that if we have registries, especially sex offender registries, that somehow um, increasing that, that data will make us safer. 
And then um, up here is what's called a weaponized ankle bracelet. This, um, many people are able to leave prison earlier as long as they're monitored and have a bracelet. And the, the sort of new trend is that our, our, if you are to go you know, 20 feet beyond the, the limits of where you're supposed to be in your home, then it can explode or maim you in some way. So, again, examples of this technology. So I could list a lot, but I'm just curious. Can you all think of other, other examples of things you see in everyday life that, that might be related to this? Yeah. Subcutaneous tracking devices. Tracking devices? Yeah. yeah. Oh, subcutaneous tracking devices. Mm-hmm. Right, so we put them in their kids, our kids to know where they are. I've done it. It works really well. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I haven't really. Um, no, and, and then we can, we can monitor people wherever they might be. Sure. What else? Cell phone records? Yep, cell phone records, my data mining, all of that, right? Well, there's a technology... Tracking people and, and ways to monitor consumer behavior. Yeah. Sarah? Uh, smart cars and producing driverless cars are going to be great assets. Smart cars and driverless cars, yeah. Other things? Some of the other um, examples people gave were uh, neighborhood lockdown, so being able to use GPS to completely lock down an entire neighborhood if there's sort of evidence of something going on um, with the work of the police. Um, data brokers, so people who actually sell and buy data, which is you know already happening. Uh, the someone said the um, iris scans, social media tracking. Privatization, as someone mentioned earlier, of law enforcement in many different ways, whether it's security, policing, prisons, um, medical record databases, prescription drug databases, uh, bus lane tracking, the ways that Google is being used in terms of monitoring or, or retrieving information, um, 3D, someone said 3D printing, someone here said counterinsurgency tactics, checkpoint technology, uh, electronic banking. Oh, and the other thing I put up here, maybe it's got a, oh yeah, the use of zip ties as a mass uh, arrest technique, um, especially in, in protests. Shot spotters, which are certain kinds of uh, weapons to take out certain people. So given all of these potential technologies, and not, I'm not saying that all of them are inherently bad or dangerous. Um, I'm, I'm sort of interested in, in discussing that. What do you, and um, I want to talk a little bit about the norms and values that are associated with them. So what, are, what would be the rationales for them? What would be the value behind them? So one would be to increase technology is a good because uh, incarceration is too expensive to justify its continued expansion. And so all of these things, or housing people 24-7 in state apartment, government-run apartments, that's a way to reduce sort of the cost. So that becomes a, a norm or value or a rationale for this. 
I'm curious if you can think of sort of other ones, values or norms. Yeah. And pushing back sort of on the understanding principle, uh, what I, I, I can see that there can be an argument made for that, for that like the mass housing that would um, lessen the like recidivism backlash, like that people get kind of sorts of system shock when they come out and they think like institutionalized lives are that it's hard to readapt or have any job skills or anything like that. They're living in houses and maybe, I mean, and, and, and have service work or something. I mean, that might be just slightly better. I mean, it's all an abomination. Right, yeah, so that instead of when people get out of prison and you get $42, right, or a bus ticket, you actually are moved into this housing, you have a, a state, a, some sort of job, um, and that, that part is taken care of, even if it is another sort of form of, of control and policing. Yeah. Yeah. Just to kind of set some context here, which states have the highest percentage of their citizens locked up? I'm trying to decide whether it's still a carry-on from the south. Or... Which states... I was going to show you this chart, but if you were to compare every state in the United States with every country in the world, which uh, there's a great website called the Prison Policy Initiative does, it would go like this. It would go Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, um, California, and then it goes, and then it starts looking at the uh, Russia and a few other countries and other states. So Louisiana, as a state, incarcerates more people per capita than any other country in the world. So it is still primarily the South, New York, and California. So I have a question on the lines that the history of that was about keeping basically the slave population, the slave population to take their labor for free and make a profit out of it. If there's not that much money to be made out of their labor, literally the work farms because automation eliminates all the low-wage jobs that being useful. Will the South actually still want to keep people off? So the question is, did everyone hear? If the South is the southern prisons, which are the bit largest in the country, uh, so Angola prison, that's the essay I wrote, uh, I wrote about Angola for Black Box, has, is the largest prison in the country. It has 8,000. It's the size of Manhattan. It has 8,000 people um, in it. And of those, I'm sorry, 6,000, 4,800 are serving life without the possibility of parole. So he's asking if part of the convict lease farm to the penitentiary was the extraction of labor, right, to, to extract profit from the labor of people, to, to the extent with under the convict lease system, you, you actually worked people to death because they had a constant sort of supply of, of a, if you think of it, as fresh bodies to replenish. So Domino Sugar is a perfect example of a company that was built on the convict lease system. So do contemporary prisons that come out of those places that use prison labor if they're no longer based on agriculture or that kind of labor, if there's automation, if there's more technology, does that then somehow affect the number of people in prison? Is that your, your question? Yeah. Right. And I think what's interesting is that in a place like Louisiana, you actually, um, it's been impossible to change sentencing laws, the fact that so many people are serving life without the possibility of parole, men and women, because you have a system that's in place by which, it, I mean, it's tied to labor, and people still are doing agricultural work and all kinds of other work people are contracted to do, to be telephone operators for AT&T. Um, to, you know, in, in many, there's many examples, but it's actually the law enforcement system itself that prevents 
the dismantling of that system because you have so many people going to prison or jail. They're housed often in parish, rural parishes that make money off of people coming from urban centers who are then sent and housed for long periods in their parish jails. And this is true in Texas as well. And so police departments are able to fund themselves new cars, um, pay officer salaries, equipment, based on the money that the state pays them to actually house the surplus bodies that can't no long, can no longer fit in the prison. So when it comes time for prison reform there, the most vociferous lobby against it are, are the state sheriffs. So in that way, I think um, it, it sort of answers your question, but it's a, it shows the, sort of the, the overall reach of that system. So some of the other values and norms associated with this um, these kinds of technologies that I'm, I'm interested in and thinking about, again, this prison beyond the walls, the increase in the supervisory state. You have consumer profiling. You have, again, data mining and the sort of profit in that. Schools, which are considered security risks. So how do schools become a, te- uh, a testing ground for thinking about safety? Right? The, and you can think about this in terms of the cr- increased police presence in schools, whether it's um, having to go through metal detectors, having to be searched, having referring behavioral issues to law enforcement and so forth. In San Francisco, when I lived there, the high school actually had police officers with um, telescopes and guns stationed on the roof of, of that high school. Uh, the idea that your records persist over a long period of time, the idea that you can also be indeterminately detained, so especially with sex offenders, you can be, your sentence can be up, but it can be uh, now certain states and the federal government can decide actually that they can keep you in a program indefinitely with no set date for release. Uh, and there's specific places they send people like North Carolina so that in a sense, you have uh, an, un- an unending sentence. Um, for-profit rehab, private-public safety partnerships, the idea of zero tolerance, this notion that we're never quite safe enough, right? And so putting the subcutaneous uh, tracking device in our children is a way of, of making us feel safer. That's the same with the registry, um, behavioral profiling, and so forth. Other things I think are interesting in relation to this are the idea of corporate personhood and how does that tie into this expansion of the state. How do we dehumanize uh, people who are incarcerated um, and undocumented? How does austerity principle, economic austerity principles increase, lead to this? This idea that incapacitation and retribution are forms of justice, so are really in some ways meager vocabulary around what justice should entail. Uh, technology, police incentives to arrest more people in more places, to have quotas, uh, and and so forth. And then, you know, think about the border militarization, this sort of language of um, rhetoric of war. You know, we have Operation Jackal. I'm just making something up. But, you know, all of this idea that the sort of militarization and the partnerships between police and the border uh, and the prisons are, are increasing. So I have uh, one kind of larger question for all of you, and then I want to make some some other points. And that is, if we assume that the people, the proponents of increased surveillance, uh, or you could say the scary technology to control crime, um, one of the assumptions that people make is that these methods are accurate and that they're bias neutral. So in fact, many people who are proponents of 
a lot of this will say that moving toward privacy-invasive surveillance schemes helps combat something like racial profiling. Um, So are we okay with a society where people have little to no privacy to achieve safety and and possibly race neutrality? So that's a question I have for all of you. I'm, I'm asking you questions. And if we assume there will always be a market for a criminal justice system and those who administer it, What's our role as people who want to dismantle the system, for those of us who do, when um, uh, technology becomes, the technology wants more and more, needs more and more people committing crimes, doing wrong, so that they can sort of justify its existence. So the first is, are we okay with a society that has very little to no privacy to achieve safety and to achieve this idea of race neutrality? The technology will become so good and so accurate that you know, we won't have to. We, we don't have to worry about racial bias. We can make sure that um, we can monitor people in these twenty-four-seven apartments and so forth. What do you think about that? I, I heard murmuring. I kind of. <laughs> I heard terrible, terrible. <laughs> yeah. So how are these working out? And I think that's why I brought up Octavia Butler, because in a way, I want to think about this as uh, a way of sort of predicting the, what the future might look like as well. So, so how is it working out for you when you get your ticket through, because they're, they're monitoring you going with your car? It's a great way to get a ticket. It's convenient, right? Well, one thing is interesting in that is the idea of body cam. So given all of the murders of um, young, mostly black men and women, uh, the sort of instances of police brutality, particularly recently, and, and this is not new. I mean, we did this book about police brutality in New York City in 2001 when Giuliani was, um, was mayor of New York. But do, do, is there a noticeable difference now that, that police are you know, forced to wear body, body cams? Does new does the use of social media make a difference? This is possible, like I said, but it is illegal to take a picture of your face in those cameras. And so, if they do, you could find it in court that you can use that against you. So, it, in those very specific instances, it is racial. It's race, race neutral because they can't take a picture of your face. Right. So if, if you had a system, I'm combining your two points, 
And there were, you know, as there are in many places, cameras in public space, maybe attached to streetlights. I was just back in Brooklyn, and um, the neighborhood I was in had those giant cameras. I, I was going to post a picture that are stationed at every block. Um, the police are stop, periodically stop every vehicle coming by um, and just check people's license, but they, in addition, have those cameras. So if, if you have something like that, right, and they're not supposed to take a picture of your face, so they're able to um, stop the right people who are speeding um, pure on pure objective criteria, right? Do we, ha- I mean, it's, it's sort of this, I'm just playing this out. Does that work in some way? Does that make it safer? Does that reduce racial bias? Yeah. Right. Where is it? Where is it located? Right. Yeah. Right. Who, who's buying it? Who's accessible to? And then who makes it? Because if you ever have gone to, has anyone ever gone to the uh, annual Corrections of America um, convention? So it's where all the vendors come. Has anyone ever been? <laughs> We're going on a field trip. <laughs> Seriously. But, uh, they, it's every vendor that has um, uh, something to be, you know, used in the prison or policing context. So these are ex- these are new handcuffs that can be affixed really quickly. Um, these are special tasers that can be used more quickly if there's a prison riot. But um, as you're sort of saying, I mean, I think that there's there is this huge kind of market for these technologies, not just who has access to them, but also who's producing them and, and the profit to be made off them. Um, I just want to, I think I'm running out of time, so I, I want to sort of say a few things and then if there are, there are more questions. Um, going back to the arguments that the right, uh, right on crime, the Coalition for Public Safety, people like Newt Gingrich and Paul Ryan are making in terms of the expense of prisons, I do think uh, one interesting question to imagine is if we actually really want to keep people out of prison, do we put them in these apartments 24-7 with webcams, or do we expand the public sector? Do we give people real jobs that pay a living wage um, instead of the contingent kind that pay a minimum wage? You look at the states, um, and there have been studies of every state in the U.S., states that have decreased, and this doesn't shouldn't be a surprise, states that decrease their funding um, per capita on welfare have experienced uh, increase in spending on prisons. So in some ways, prisons become the space where the sort of failure of the welfare state um, to take care of people, you know, where, where people end up. Um, and there's a lot of sort of, I have skepticism around Newt Gingrich and others, mainly because um, if they really wanted to make a significant dent in what we call the carceral state in the U.S., they might begin um, supporting certain kinds of programs like expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act because in many of these states, um, 
Medicaid gives huge infusions of public money so that people can get mental health services, they can get drug abuse treatment, medical care for the same people that end up in prison. Because it's not people necessarily like me who are the people who end up in prison. It's people with mental health issues, a history of trauma, um, people with lack of education, lack of medical care. Uh, And then it also allows the states that have expanded Medicaid to shift their costs to the federal government as opposed to putting them into prisons. So a state like Texas, which has a massive prison population, what's really interesting is that they keep going after these grants like the Second Chance Grant um, or these justice reinvestment grants that are supposed to help address mass incarceration. And in fact, they're very, if you compare that to, if we thought about the sort of expansion of Medicaid, they're very small amounts. They're really a pittance. Um, that states, out of ideological for ideological disagreements to the Affordable Care Act, have been issuing billions and billions of dollars in Medicaid funding that really could provide a second chance to people who are leaving prison, people who really never had a first chance, um, by providing them with sort of the basic and uh, services that people need to build to be and build good lives. Um, My frustration, I go to a lot of things with people from the Department of Correction and people doing reentry, is that everyone talks about we just, the the baseline rationale is we don't want people to go back to prison, right? Um, So if we put them in these apartments 24 7 or we put these ankle bracelets on them, they won't go back to prison. And I always say, well, you could have a person who's mentally ill living under a bridge and they haven't gone back to prison if that's the sort of baseline criteria that we're using. But is that a, is that a person who's built a healthy life? How do you help people reintegrate with their family, have mental health services, um, deal with their trauma, find meaningful work that's not just a, a, a job but even a career, um, have access to an education and so forth? So, so how do you help people build a good life? Those are not questions that infuse any of these conversations. And as many of you have noted, with these very powerful interests that profit politically and economically from mass imprisonment, many states just make these very symbolic cuts um, that don't don't reduce their incarcerated population and don't really save that much money. Um, What they end up doing is emphasizing austerity. And so what you have now in the U.S. are prisons, which some people call... Uh, I've heard a a student in the prison say they're leaner and meaner. Um, Basically, you have more homicides, assaults, lack of health care, because the the states have just cut all of these things for people in prison. So going back to what is the purpose of a prison, is it to actually reform people and give them the tools to come back to society and build this good life, or is it just to simply warehouse them um, or make them worse? Uh, Things like lack of healthy food, Uh, medical care, access to things like for women, there was a big case, um, tampons, right? Things we sort of take as basic givens. Ten minutes? Okay. Um, And I think what when we talk about this as an economic issue, we just really legitimize this kind of notion that this is a race to the bottom. Um, And really... uh, what we don't do is sort of all of these arguments, what they don't la- they lack, going back to your point earlier at the end here, this sort of idea of there are actually human beings in prison, who's heard, supposed to, some of many of whom are sentenced to spend their whole lives there. And we tend to actually forget that in all of these conversations about the sort of uses of technology, what works and what doesn't. Um, And when you actually think of people as human beings as opposed to what I hear over and over, calling people offenders or criminals uh, or convicts, 
you know, when you think of someone as a human being, it gives us a different sense of what our obligation is to them. So I just want to end with uh, a couple of quotes. But one is, how do we respond to the suffering and vulnerability of people who, the human beings who are inside prison, um, with whom we share maybe very little in common, right? Because I think proximity to others is sometimes what engenders action, not just compassion, but the ability to, to change. And that, um, I'm quoting Hannah Arendt, but she says, our shared humanity is found not through pain's displacement or its resolution, but through its experience, through our engagement, however fundamentally problematic and partial with the suffering of others. And I I think that's an important point to hold um, as, as we think about the implications of both the prisons themselves and the prisons beyond the prison walls. So I'm done, and I'm open to any questions in in the time we have left. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah. So you um, you said earlier what would be justifications that they could use for this apartment with monitoring system, and um, and I was thinking of the housing first approach to homelessness and how that's like we've tried everything and really that's the only model that works is you get these people into apartments and then you get them the services because if they don't have stable housing, giving them all these services just isn't, it's not sticking, it's not as effective. And so that's what came to mind for me is that that could easily be a justification for moving people into <coughs> apartments, and that doesn't necessarily address the creepiness of the monitoring, but that I can imagine making an easy justification for getting them their own places and then bringing the services to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Housing is, as you said, the, the, the most basic central issue in terms of people leaving prison in, in any way. It's difficult to find. People are barred from certain kinds of housing. It, and everyone, everyone you talk to leaving prison says exactly what you have. And so I think there is, though, a, a difference between providing adequate, safe housing for people leaving prison as, and, and then monitoring them 24-7. Because what he's really saying is that instead of um, not just when people are leaving, which you're, you're absolutely right, but that instead of keeping people inside, we put them in these apartments and monitor them, and that's a way to deal with people who are potentially violent or who have committed a violent crime. Um, and, and that, I think you raise this really important point. It is, it, it is addressing the central need. It is addressing something that very few people want to talk about, that people in prison, some have done horrible things and harmed other people, and how do we deal with that while also holding... Uh, the, the idea that prisons are horrible places and you're isolated from your family, the rest of society, you're punished, you can be hurt, and, and et cetera. Um, how do you reconcile those two things? Uh, yeah, in the back. You, oh, yeah. Uh, do you, do you, can you refer us to any sort of bulleted plan on like, the right-minded way to go about Because the policy is, I mean, the policy issues are so paralyzing and large. I, mean, I don't even know... Where do we start? Like, what's the, what do we do? Like, how do we move forward? I see what all, all the terrors in the future, but is there any? Is there any hope? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking about this, and uh, I was 
I was thinking about, I think it's a really great analogy to, to, of, to make prisons to slavery because there was a time in U.S. history in which people could not imagine another kind of system, right? That this was just the way it is and this is how it functioned. Um, there were religious justifications for it. There were clearly sort of an economic, um, underlying economic system that kept it going. And I think if we make that analogy, it was former slaves, it was abolitionists, it was religious reformers who worked tirelessly both first in the UK and then here to sort of make an argument that was ethical, that was political, that was, that was economic, that this, should be, this system should be dismantled. And I think if we, make, if we think about that as an analogy, right, that this was the way it was. And now to us, it's, it's unimaginable. And I think we can start to think about prisons in the same way. I'm not saying here's a step-by-step guide to dismantling the prison system, but if we can start making ethical arguments against them, political arguments against them, um, economic arguments against them, to to talk about their base inhumanity, to think about why people go to prison in the first place and what the purpose is, that that discussion is so important. We've already arrived at a moment where we have this massive shift. People, presidential candidates talking about prisons, that's never been the case. And so uh, a lot of it is, I think, I, I think people, everyone should go into a prison. And I think also it's thinking about being able to make arguments about why they don't work and what, and, and being able to say, there can be another alternative, even if we don't have the exact program or, or, or exactly what it's going to look like. And the concept of abolition, people will say, it's, it's too far-fetched, it will never happen, we can't just abolish every prison, what would happen? It would be total chaos. What about people like Charles Manson? Over and over you hear that, they're sort of exceptional person. But abolition to me is really important as a concept, and, and I think it's Angela Davis who says, abolition is a horizon. And I think we, you know, as people who want to think and think critically have to sort of see it almost in a utopic way, that we don't know maybe what it will look like, but we can imagine something differently and we can start to get there. And by even using the language of abolition, of ending mass incarceration, we sort of move toward that. And I have a lot more I could say about it, um, but I, I do think just in our everyday lives and in our writing and our work and our conversation and our activism and connecting it to things like the homeless crisis, we move towards a different vision. And that's how, that's how slavery ended. I mean, there were other ways that slavery ended too. There's, you know, there's war, there's resur- there's revolution, but anyway, yeah. Okay. Last question. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. Positive models. Well, I I will say, and I'm not biased in any way, that um, you know studies have shown, and, and I see it on a daily basis, that when people in prison are given access to education, um, something happens, right? And studies show that there are less people are less likely to return to prison the more education they have. You see very few people with a college degree going to prison. I think giving people access to education um, while inside. 
and allows them to sort of think about them building careers, building meaningful work. I think one other thing I'm very hopeful and positive about are these incredible organizations that have been founded and started by formerly incarcerated people. Uh, Just Leadership is one. It's national. It was started by a guy who was in prison for a long time. Uh, Glenn Martin, and it's basically building the leadership capacity of formerly incarcerated people to speak to these issues, to make policy changes, to become the sort of thought leaders around this work. And similarly, we're seeing um, more and more people who are getting educations in prison who are coming out and working in colleges and so forth to try and and, uh, really, again, shape how the university sort of sees itself in relationship to prison, the fair, uh, the fair justice pledge, I can't remember, fair chance pledge that they put on the White House has done, that's businesses are being forced to pledge not to be biased against people because of their criminal record. Universities are doing the same thing. And that's just not happening from the policy level. That's happening because you have a kind of groundswell of people um, from the bottom that are saying these are important issues. So to me, those are all really exciting and potentially um, could could really make a huge difference because if you have a movement that's led by people who have been directly impacted and their families, uh, you, you have a, a really powerful, uh, I think, really powerful things could happen. So I'll end on that. Thank you. So the organization we run, uh, Stuart Smithers, who you met, uh, was uh, one of the founders, and um, that's how I met Stuart five five years ago. But we run this college program in in the main women's prison here in Washington, and it's called the Freedom Education Project Puget Sound. So if you look us up, it's FEPPS.org. There's a college program for men at the Washington State Reformatory, and there's really a movement nationally Uh, We were just invited to the White House, to the Department of Ed. There's really a movement nationally to think about education as a central intervention into mass incarceration. And we're always looking for people who want to teach, who want to come in and give a lecture, who want to volunteer. We have study halls. Um, We need need so much help. So I think it's – that doesn't – that's not going to abolish the prison, and you're always in this tension of working within a system that you might disagree with, but it does really profoundly shape how you sort of understand how it works, and it gets to that issue of proximity. When you know people who are directly affected, I think people are more likely to act. So if any of you are interested, talk to Stuart. Okay, thank you. (laughs) 